join me, if you will, uh, in a moment of prayer. Almighty God, most kind, gracious Heavenly Father, we come inside these walls today to worship you for a short respite from all that goes on in this world in which we travel through. And Father, you know there is much, much unease in our world today. And we pray for your people around the world who suffer persecution for the sake of the gospel. And we pray especially this morning for your people, for followers of Christ in the country of Ukraine. Father, we pray for the church there. We pray that you might protect your people, that you might strengthen their faith, and that their faith not wane during this terrible time in their country. And Father, I pray for our government leaders. Father, we pray that you might crush the will of those who are in government service whose desires are not to serve the people, but to serve themselves. Father, we know that you control the rivers. You control the king's heart. And Father, help us to remain steadfast in that. Father, I pray for our own military men and women, our own first responders who put their lives in harm's way each and every day in order to serve others. Father, there's those among us that are sick, that are dealing with loss, dealing with grief, dealing with various difficulties. And we pray, Lord, that they might continue to know your touch, to sense your spirit. And Father, may we be sensitive as a church body to minister to the needs of those we encounter and of those around us and in particular those in our own church body. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for each family that is represented here. And we pray for those who are unable to be here today. Watch over them. And Father, now as we go to your word, I pray that you might grant me clarity of thought, clarity of speech. I pray that the gift of the Spirit that you have blessed each one of us with would work in our hearts, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might glean from your word. And it's in Christ's name that I ask these things. Amen. So this morning, we will be uh, looking at Luke's gospel, and we will be in chapter 7, beginning in verse 18, and I will read um, through verse 35. This will be the section um, where John the Baptist has some questions for Jesus. Um, Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, 
and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children, sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. I wonder, does anybody here today have unmet expectations, unmet desires, how does it make us feel when the outcome we sought in the pursuit of, some, of fulfilling some desire doesn't work out like we want it to? I know personally for me, it leads to impatience. I know you folks probably all think, Mike, you couldn't be an impatient person. I assure you, I am very impatient. When expectations are not met, a negative reaction is often the result. We sometimes do things or say things that we ordinarily might not do. And it happens in the blink of an eye. Before we realize what it can be done. But it's also very easy when we do that to justify it to ourselves. Even the small things in life can produce this kind of response. In the words of the great theologian Winnie the Pooh, sometimes the smallest things take up the most room in our hearts. Our lives are full of unmet expectations and desires. Maybe you get disappointed with your spouse, one of your children, or one of your grandchildren. Maybe your work is a source of unmet desire. Maybe it's the home you live in. Maybe it's what you perceive as a lack of personal growth. It could be anything. Well, how do we deal with unmet expectations? How do we deal with our own impatience? 
I am often amazed at how hard people will work to have our desires met and how impatient we get when they're not being met. How we try to twist and turn life's events so that our expectations can be met. A book I recently read for two different classes at seminary is titled You Are What You Love by Dr. Jamie K. Smith. Now, the book's focus is on worship and discipleship. And as you might imagine by the title, one of the central themes of the book is that the things we love, the things that we desire, are the things that, in essence, define us. They are the things that we will spend countless hours, energy, and even finances in the pursuit of these desires. In a nutshell, Smith says we become what we love. Smith opens this book up with a scene from John's Gospel in which two of John the Baptist's disciples are curious about Jesus and seem to be following behind him. And Jesus eventually turns around to them and asks, what do you seek? In other words, what do you want? Smith goes on in the book to make a very strong case that this is one of the most significant questions in all of Scripture. In many ways, the things we think we want ultimately bring us no satisfaction. In fact, they often serve to put us on an endless cycle of seeking what we think we want. Now, we'll visit Smith's writing a bit later, but for now, as we go to our story in the text, we see someone who had some faulty expectations and desires. Because John's expectations were skewed by his own desires, we will see a high level of impatience. It's not that his desires were a bad thing. They were simply led astray by his expectations. So some background on John. In our passage, immediately we're confronted with a pretty significant theological question, one I had to wrestle with uh, all week. Does John the Baptist doubt who Jesus is? Well, without any further study or investigation, that certainly seems to be the case if the only thing we consider is the text in front of us. And my reaction initially was probably very much like yours. Yes, John, who is now in Herod's prison, seems to be having doubts. Seems perfectly natural, doesn't it? We all have doubts. But as I continue to read this text from beginning to end, over and over, I really began to wrestle with the idea that John had doubts about who Jesus was. All four of the Gospels mention John. He was the forerunner of Christ. He's a relative of Jesus. He baptized Jesus. And he says something very important as he prepares to baptize Jesus. And I think that statement, as well as others he makes in the other Gospels, coupled with the rest of his background information, served to demonstrate that maybe it wasn't doubt about who Jesus was that prompted his question. It was something else. Now, Luke's account of John growing up does not suggest a close relationship with Jesus. Luke tells us John grew up in the wilderness. And the next thing we hear of John, after he goes out in the wilderness to grow up, is when he comes preaching near the Jordan River. And he quotes Isaiah and speaks of judgment. And he referred to some who were coming to him for baptism as a brood of vipers. Who warned you of the wrath to come? 
He preaches repentance, and he speaks of the axe already being laid at the root of the tree. John is no doubt in his own mind speaking in part to the religious leaders. But his words have far greater reach than he expects. His words are directed at the, not only the entire religious establishment. His words reflect the coming of the end of an age. The end of the Mosaic age. The end of Judaism, Judaism as it would be known in his day. Now next we find John encountering Jesus who'd come to be baptized by John. Listen to his words as Christ approaches. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now the next thing we hear about John, he's locked up in Herod's prison. Why? He had some judgmental words for Herod. Herod wanted to take his brother Philip's wife as his own wife. John says you can't do that. It's not lawful. John ends up in prison because of it. And that's where we find John when he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the expected one? Shall we look for another? I think it's important for us to remember that most of the Old Testament prophets, particularly those concerned with the northern or southern kingdom, preached a message of repentance. Give up your your sinful covenant-breaking ways. Turn your hearts back to the Lord your God. Only then, Only then would God restore the nations. John was no different than the Old Testament prophets that preceded him. He had the same message with the addition that the Messiah would take away the sins of the world. And our passage begins with these words. The disciples of John reported to him all of these things. Well, these are obviously reports to John while he's in prison from his disciples. Naturally, John wants to know what's going on out there. What is Jesus doing? What's happening? Well, since John had been in prison, Jesus had begun teaching in the synagogues, quoting from Isaiah 61, and telling the people that his appearance is fulfilled in the scripture that he's reading to them. Now, Jesus met with mixed reaction to his teaching. And his first teaching in the synagogue is where we get our first hint of the rejection And the rage some of the people have against Jesus. So then Jesus goes on and he does a series of healings. He's casting out demons. He calls a couple of disciples. Luke tells us that the news of his miracles traveled fast. And many were coming to him for healing. Then Jesus calls Matthew a tax collector as a disciple. Matthew in turn throws a big party for Jesus. Lots of tax collectors and sinners there. John the Baptist is hearing this. He's in jail. He's preaching the message of repentance and judgment. Then there's a discussion about John's disciples fasting and offering prayers while Jesus and his disciples are partying. 
The disciples of Jesus are found picking grain on the Sabbath. Jesus even goes into a synagogue on a Sabbath and performs a healing miracle. What do you think is going through John's mind when he hears these things? John's an old covenant guy, a Mosaic covenant guy. He's a law guy. Jesus hanging out with sinners. No prayers and fasting like his own disciples. And then Jesus goes out and gets some more guys to join the group. He performs more healings. Now he's healing Gentiles. He then delivers this Sermon on the Mount. These Beatitudes. Talking about who's blessed. Then to top it off during this teaching, he says, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone hits you on the cheek, offer him the other cheek. If someone takes your shirt, let him have it. Give to anyone who asks you. On and on. John has to be wondering by now, where is judgment Jesus? Where is the judgment that he came to bring? John's disciples even told him Jesus stated, do not judge and you will not be judged. Imagine what's going through John's mind. He's in prison right now because of his judgment against Herod. Jesus performs more healings, including a centurion's son. He interrupts a funeral procession and raises someone from the dead. Jesus, where's the judgment? When are you going to free us from Rome? When are you going to destroy our enemies? Why are you making friends with sinners? Tax collectors, why am I in jail? I have so much work to do. Did I do all this for nothing? Why, Jesus? Why? What are you doing? I think John's grown impatient. For John, Jesus is fooling around with all these sick folks and Gentiles, sinners, tax collectors, when he should be enacting judgment. Maybe he might even start his judgment with King Herod so John can go free and get back to work. So John sends his disciples to Jesus to question him. Are you the expected one or should we look for another? Based on what we've learned so far, we know that like, like many other Jews, Jesus did not meet John's expectation of Messiah. Jesus said John was the Elijah to come. Well, he's John. He's not Elijah. Elijah was a great prophet with great power. John doesn't demonstrate those things. And the locals know that John is the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. He's no Elijah. He's just another madman. So both John and Jesus are often rejected, ultimately feared by political leaders. And we've seen so-called messiahs before. Why should this one be any different? So back to the question that John asked, are you the expected one? Or shall we look for someone else? And I think it's the second part of this question, or shall we look for someone else? I think we should see that a bit as sarcasm. With some intent behind it, to motivate Jesus to start doing Messiah stuff. Without coming right out and saying it, that is what I think John is hinting at. Stop all this fooling around and get down to the business of the kingdom. 
In Luke's account, John does not immediately give, Jesus does not immediately give the disciples an answer. What does he do? In verse 21, he cured many people of diseases while they're standing there. Afflictions and evil spirit. And he gave sight to many who were blind. Jesus does exactly some of the things that John's disciples had previously reported to John. He lets them see with their own eyes what he's doing. And I don't think it's an accident that Luke records, and he gave sight to many who were blind as the last event in this list. Jesus is giving John's disciples sight. They can go back and tell John as Jesus commands, tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. Remember how often Jesus performed miracles and he told the people present not to say anything about what they saw or heard? This case is different. He wants them to go back and tell John. Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. These words are highly significant for what they say and what they don't say. Let me explain. Remember earlier we found Jesus was teaching in the synagogues, quoting from Isaiah 61, part of what I just read to you. He's also quoting from, in this passage from Isaiah 35. He's also quoting from another Old Testament passage, likely Isaiah 24, in reference to the raising of the dead, but there are numerous passages that refer to the raising of the dead in the Old Testament, so scholars are a little unsure about that. Since they're unsure, I'm unsure. Um, Isaiah 35 says, The eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will walk, and the tongue of the mute shall shout for joy. Let me read you Isaiah 61.1, which Jesus partially quotes. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Did you catch that? I told you earlier, Jesus quoted from that passage, Isaiah 61. But what's missing in his response to John? Did you see it? Did you hear it? Jesus is reminding John that his coming is not only about judgment. He needs John to understand the need for some patience on John's part. There's so much yet to be done before the day of judgment. The good news is not only for the Jews. You said it yourself, John. The Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. John has done his job properly. He's done it well. He made straight the path for the Lord. He proclaimed repentance and a turning of the hearts back to God. John, like so many of your fellow Jews, your expectation of what the Messiah came to do are out of focus. You have a single focus. You want your people set free. You want the Herods of this world removed and to pay for their sins against the people. You seek judgment. John, I came to offer life for all the nations. I came to cause the blind to see, 
the new creation I'm bringing in. I came to cause the deaf to be able to hear the good news. I came to heal the broken and the diseased of the world. I came to cleanse people. I came to raise men and women dead in their trespass and sin to a new life in the kingdom of God. John, I came to inaugurate a new covenant. The old covenant you are so fond of is going to disappear in order to make room for a new and better, more inclusive covenant. There will be time for judgment, John. But the time is not now. Just as Jesus told his mother Mary, my hour has not yet come. Now, I left you hanging on purpose a few minutes ago, didn't I? When I ask you what you saw and what you heard in the Isaiah 61 passage. Some of you might have figured it out. Jesus did not quote the entire passage to John, did he? Of course, John would be familiar with the text. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't be sending that back as an answer. What part did Jesus leave out? To proclaim liberty to the captives. Here we have John, imprisoned by Herod, asking Jesus, what are you doing? Why haven't you got me out of this jail cell? And the answer Jesus sends tells John he'll not be getting out of the jail cell. Good news, John. The gospel is going forth. Just as the Father and the Spirit and the Son have planned. But your work is done, John. I don't think you'll be getting out of jail. And just one more thing. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Blessed is he who doesn't stumble over my words. Some scholars see the response of Jesus as somewhat of a chastisement for John. I don't see that at all. Because in the very next verses of the story, Jesus highly commends John. I don't think he's chastising him. I think Jesus is simply pointing out to John, your expectations are skewed. And your impatience is driving your expectations. Wow, imagine how you would have felt if you were John. That shouldn't be too hard. While you and I are not the last prophet of a former age, we aren't locked up in the king's prison. We are just like John at times. Our expectations are skewed and often driven by our own impatience. How do you suppose John reacted to the news his disciples returned to him? We don't really know. Scripture doesn't tell us that. But I think we can draw some conclusions by what we don't see. We don't see a response from John. In fact, the next thing we hear about John is of his death at the hands of Herod. Two things to consider. John was in prison for his comments to Herod about taking his brother's wife. The Gospels also tell us that Herod feared John. And he feared him because of John's popularity with the people. Sounds a little bit like Pilate. So I imagine John considering what his disciples had seen and heard. And I think John accepted the words of Christ and came to understand his own false expectations. John accepted the words of Christ and he accepted that he would not be set free from prison and that most likely he would die a martyr. John realized that the kingdom would come in its own time and in the way God had planned. Now, you might be asking yourself, how can you say that, Mike? The scripture doesn't say that. 
Had John rejected the words of Christ, he could have very easily sent these same disciples to Herod that he'd been wrong regarding his judgment of Herod's desires. What would he really have to lose if he did not accept the response of Christ? Remember, Herod was afraid of John. If John had changed his stance and looked the other way at Herod's wickedness, Herod may have relented because of John's popularity. Imagine Herod, the fake king of the Jews, with this wildly, pro wildly popular prophet in his corner. Imagine what that would do for Herod standing among the Jews. It would be a win-win for Herod, but that didn't happen. Instead, John was executed and further humiliated. I think it's safe to say that John put away his impatience and his expectations and accepted the words of Christ, even if it meant it would cost him everything. John understood the final words of Jesus to him. Blessed is he who does not take offense with me. In a book titled Waiting, Finding Hope When God Seems Silent, written by Ben Patterson, he writes, What we become as we wait is at least as important as the thing we wait for. To wait in hope is not to just pass the time until the wait is over. It is to see the time passing as part of the process God is using to make us into the people he created us to be. In this next section of our passage, Jesus, I told you, he defends John's honor. In spite of John's demonstrated impatient and wrong-headed desires, he calls John the greatest man born into a woman. John was a faithful servant. He had fulfilled his mission as the forerunner. He had received Christ's words faithfully. Like most of the Old Testament prophets, John had lived a hard life. He didn't live a life of glamour and ease. It was a life dedicated to God, and in the end, it cost him his life. Jesus did not want the people who were present, to, who had all been baptized by John, to start beginning to question John and to thinking less of John. Simply because John demonstrated the same human frailties that they had, the same human frailties that you and I have. John, in spite of his doubts, remained faithful to the Master and to the words of the Master. You will note in verses 29 and 30 that the words Jesus had an impact on these people gathered around. Those who had received John's baptism, including the tax collectors, acknowledged God's justice. They accept the words of Christ. There was another group present also, the Pharisees and the lawyers. Lawyers, by the way, is another term for scribes. Our text says they rejected God's purpose for themselves. They had not received the baptism of repentance. The very religious leaders who should have known the Messiah has come for their own personal reasons reject him. The men with all the knowledge of the covenants and the law. These men don't measure up. They don't meet our expectations. And these men were willing to stake their eternity on that decision. 
Jesus makes a comparison to them to little children in the marketplace. He says, to what shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and you say, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard. He's a friend to tax collectors and sinners. According to Dr. Sproul, this is one of those rare occasions where the New Testament draws on a saying from popular culture of its day. As the children played with each other in the street, there would always be the one who would be difficult to please. Does anybody know that child? And the expression that the children used in this situation was the expression Jesus cited. And it probably means this, that a child comes along and wants to join in, but he is glum, and so the children try to cheer him up by playing their pipes and singing a cheerful song. Yet this sourpuss won't enter the game. He won't even crack a smile. So the children try to accommodate themselves to the one who is out of step by singing a sad song. And even then, the child who's playing hard to get won't participate. Jesus, therefore, was likening this generation to an obstinate and stubborn child who is always going against the rest of the group. He goes on to show this obstinacy by comparing their responses to himself and to John the Baptist. John has come eating, no bread, drinking no wine. He has a demon. The Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and you say, behold, he's a glutton. See what Jesus is saying? There are some people that just cannot be pleased. They just won't be pleased. John came in austerity with a very rigid and disciplined asceticism. John was a man of the law, of the Mosaic Covenant. They didn't like that. The Pharisees didn't like that. They said he was demonic. Jesus participated in the life of the people, the ordinary people, and they didn't like that either. And he associated with sinners. Jesus concludes his rebuke with the words, Wisdom is vindicated by her children. A wise course of action is shown to be wise, not necessarily in the planning stage when things are questionable, when expectations or desires seem in doubt, but by the fruit that is born. Wisdom literature tells us there's a time to sing and there's a time to dance, there's a time to weep, and there's a time to mourn. There are times when associating with the needy and the lost, even to the point of participating in their activities, is an appropriate course of action. Our own expectations, like John's, can be so focused on the outcome of a situation that very often we can fail to take time to enjoy the journey or to evaluate our motives along the way. When Barbara and I travel somewhere, I am like this. We got to get there. We're only stopping here, here, and here. We got to get there. Oh, really? We've only been on the road an hour and we've got to stop? She's just positive. I'm the glass half empty guy. Barbara's the glass half full person. She's enjoying the journey. Not me, I got to get there. 
She wants to go on a cruise. I don't ever want to go on a cruise again. It takes too long to get there. <laughs> I want to get on the airplane and go wherever we're going. I don't want to be stuck on a ship for five or seven days or whatever it is. We can become slaves to our expectations or we can become slaves to the expectations of others. If those desires rarely ever bring us the satisfaction we really long for. So we repeat the cycle over and over and over. A cycle of manipulation, really, to achieve expectations or desires that will not satisfy us. We think they will, but they won't. As I wrap up this morning, I want us to visit Dr. Smith's writing once more. In his book, he uses a story as an illustration from a film that's an allegory, similar something like Pilgrim's Progress, although this is not Pilgrim's Progress. The story follows three men on a journey. They are named Professor, Writer, and Stalker. Stalker serves as the guide. As the story begins, these guys are on a journey, and the destination is kind of shrouded in mystery and intrigue. Eventually, we learn from Stalker that he is leading these men to a place called the Zone and more specifically to a room within the place called the zone. It's the room that's drawn them there. It's what has led them to follow Stalker's promises. For in the room, he tells them, they will achieve their heart's desire. In the room, their dreams will come true. In the room, you get exactly what you want, which is why when they're at the threshold of the room, Professor and writer get cold feet. Now, Jeff Dyer is an American author who captures the scene in a book about the film. And Dyer says they're in a big, abandoned, derelict, dark room with what looks like the remains of an enormous chemistry set floating in a puddle in the middle of the floor, as if the zone had been the result of some ill-conceived experiment that went wrong. Off to the right, there's a large hole in the wall, and it's the source of light. And they're all looking towards the light. For a long time, nobody speaks. They can hear the birds whistling, chirping, singing like mad, in fact. And Stalker tells writer and professor, he tells us, we're now at the very threshold of the room. It's the most important moment of your life, he says. Your innermost wish will be made true here. This is the place where you can have what you want. Who wants to go first? Professor and writer hesitate because it dawns on them. What if I don't really know what I want? Well, observes Dyer, that's for the room to decide. The, the room reveals all. What you get is not what you think you wish for, but what you most deeply desire. And a disturbing epiphany is creeping up on Professor and Ryder. What if they don't want what they think? What if the desires they are conscious of, the ones they've chosen, are not their innermost longings? They're not their really deepest desires. What if in some sense... Their deepest longings 
are tucked away inside under their consciousness. They're unaware of them. What if in effect, in effect, they're not who they think they are? Dyer captures the angst and says, not many people can confront the truth about themselves. If they did, they'd run a mile in the other direction and perhaps even develop a profound dislike to the person in whose skin they've learned to sit in for all these years. Now, some of us can identify. If I ask you, a Christian, to tell me what you really want, what do you really long for most deeply, what do you ultimately love? Of course, you all know the right answer. You know what you're supposed to say. And what you say could be genuinely and genuine and authentic. I'm not doubting that. A true expression of your intellectual conviction. Would you step into the room? Are you confident that what you think you love aligns with your innermost longings? This comment, this comments Dyer is one of the lessons of the zone. Sometimes a man doesn't want to do what a man thinks he wants to do. Interestingly, he states, your deepest desire is the one manifested by your daily life and habits. That's because our action, all of our doing, bubbles up from our loves. Habits we've acquired through the practices we're immersed in. That means the formation of my loves and desires could be happening without me recognizing. It's what the culture does to us. I might be learning from the culture to love an idea or an object I'm not even aware of. And nonetheless, it governs my life. It skews my expectations and desires. It's what drives my impatience. The allures and the promise of the culture. The giant shopping mall that promises all the things that we think will satisfy us. The things that create desire in us. Desires that we believe, because of the culture's influence, will bring us ultimate satisfaction. The culture builds that expectation in us. It builds an expectation that it knows it can't satisfy. Now let me ask you a question. What do you seek? What do you really want? What do you really love? Are you like John? So focused on the outcome that you even dare to question the one who loves you beyond what any of us can imagine? Maybe instead of being so focused on the outcome and expectations, our motivations should be more Christ-centered. More centered on what he has taught us. Namely, when questioned by the Pharisees about what are the greatest commandments, Jesus said the first is to love God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, your strength. Well, what does that look like? Well, I submit to you that it looks like the second commandment, the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's a good place to start, loving God with all your heart and soul, mind and strength. Paul expresses these same ideas in different words. 
in all of his epistles. James talks about being a doer of the word. The Bible can be terribly confusing if we look at it. We're under the law. We're not under the law. We don't, we, we don't have to work. No, we do have faith in works. And we can get lost in all that. But if we go to the words of Jesus, love God and love others as you love yourself, that'll go a long way towards helping us understand what the Bible is showing us. Don't look at all these things in the epistles as lists of things to go do. They're examples of how you might love God. There are examples how you might love others. I challenge you, go home and look at them and see if in some way or another, anything you read in the New Testament, epistles in particular, will tie back to that idea of loving God and loving others. For in these two commands, all of the law and prophets are summed up. That seems to me like a wonderful place to place our motivations our expectations, and our desires. I am preaching to myself. You get to hear it, but I promise you I'm preaching to myself. I have wrestled with this. Struggled with this. I'm willing to bet you have to. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time that we might gather together in a feeble effort to attempt to learn from your word. Thankfully, Father, we don't have to rely on the teacher or the preacher. We rely on your Holy Spirit to do the work. Thank you, Father, in Christ's name.